I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles for our Bible study this morning. As the ushers move through the auditorium, they do have some extra sermon notes. Raise your hand. They'll hand that to you. We're headed for John chapter 17. John chapter 17 this morning for our Bible study. We're taking a break from other things and just talking about, rather, that whole idea of the, res- the crucifixion of Christ and all that is going on. And this morning I entitled The Lord's Prayer, The Lord's Passion. Some of you are familiar with history in the sense that in 1848, John Sutter we had an agriculture empire and what he wanted to do was get some buildings done on a certain part of his uh, empire there, his terrain that he owned and so he sent James Marshall and a crew to go out there and to do some lumbering so as to build a sawmills for extra building upon that area that they would need more farm, uh, more barns and things of that sort. When John Marshall went out there and after they set up the sawmill, you're familiar with what happened there in 1848 that all of a sudden when they were doing the process they saw some of those flex of something shiny in the water and they realized that what they found was a gold mine that created that gold strike and you have all those different things in history where all of a sudden this whole gold rush occurred and the entire state of California was affected in the United States. And there was a comment made by James Marshall that day that it happened. He said to the fellow, he says, boys, I believe we found a gold mine. That gold mine ended up being real. But it depleted over a period of time. Folk, I think we found a gold mine for this morning's Bible study. It's in John 17, and it'll never be depleted. None of us will fully understand all of the context here, or the the content here. It is just so rich. John chapter 17, what an amazing passage that we want to try to study, what we want to look at for a few minutes. The setting of it is interesting. It is during that night of the Last Supper. Jesus has spent now that meal, going through that Paschal meal with the disciples, and he's been instructing them. We read about the instruction in chapters 12, uh, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, where he's telling them about his upcoming death. He's telling them that somebody's going to betray him. He tells them about how he's going to leave behind the peace, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and they can pray. They can have the hope of heaven. And after he gives all of this instruction and he's instituted what we call the communion supper, at the very end Jesus prays. And in John 17 we have that entirety of what he's prayed is what we understand. It is the longest prayer in scripture that Jesus has prayed that's recorded. Now we understand he's prayed all night long. He's prayed on many other occasions. But this is the longest recorded prayer by Jesus. And when he's praying in John 17, just to break it down for us, for our sake, it's interesting that what he does is he focuses on three people or people groups. The first one that he focuses on, verses 1 through 5 or 6, is about himself. He's praying for himself. He's praying about himself. He's praying about him and the Father in heaven. And we read in those words where he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify thee. For thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me. And this is the shift. Now this, verse 6, down through about verse 19, he's praying for his 11 disciples. Judas has already left. And he's praying for what we call the apostles. I have manifested thy name unto the men which you gave me. Thine they were, thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are of thee. 
For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father." Keep through thine own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now come I to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them thy word, and the world which hath, uh, the world hath hated them, because they are not of the word, world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy name, or through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Then he prays for a third group of people. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for the disciples. Now he prays for future believers. He prays for us. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and has loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou hast loved them before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you that sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them." It is interesting to look at what Jesus has prayed about. It's interesting to look at what Jesus reveals about himself when he prays. As we look at his prayer, here's what we find that Jesus is really interested in. He is first of all and foremost interested that he himself would glorify God. The first few verses, if you back up, he makes it very clear. He says that I personally want to glorify you. We've already read where he says, glorify thy son, that thy son may glorify you. Jesus is concerned. I want to make sure I glorify you. It is interesting that he would say that when he has already in this prayer, he said, you know, I'm a very powerful person. He's not saying it that way, like, look at me, look how powerful I am. But notice how he alludes to it. He says, you have given me power over all flesh in verse 2. You have given so, so I have power to give eternal life. Nobody else has such power. Nobody else has control over all creation. Nobody else can give eternal life. No other, no other claimed Messiah. Only I can give people eternal life. This is how powerful I am. And yet for all my power, for all of my abilities, I want this one thing. I want to glorify you. I want to magnify you. I want to exalt you, Heavenly Father. And so he is praying, help me to glorify you in what's coming. And he's passionate about this. 
He's making this a matter of prayer. He's going to mention this several times about glorifying the Father. He is determined to glorify the Father with, with total zeal and total energy. He is, as we said in Sunday school, setting his face like a flint headed for Jerusalem up to this point, now praying, help me, Father, help me to glorify you. He's passionate about glorifying God. He wants to make sure that this is what is done. He wants to do it perpetually. He wants to magnify the Father. He wants to exalt the Father. He makes the comment where he talks about in verse 4 that in my life so far, in the days that I have had, these 33 and a half years or so that I have lived, I have glorified you. I have exalted you while I've been on this earth and I still want to exalt you. I don't want to say that I've done enough, that I've done the miracles, that I've, that I've saved enough people. I still want to magnify you. This is my goal. It's perpetual. It is ongoing. It is my personal desire, no matter what my abilities, that I bring glory to you, that you are magnified. And then what he does is he alludes to how this is done, how to bring glory by saying, I have, I have brought you glory by performing what you have told me to do. He makes that comment. He says, I have completed the work that you have sent me to do. He's making a clear illustration for us that if we're going to bring glory to God, the way that we do this is by doing what God has told us to do. To bring glory to Him involves obeying Him, doing His will, doing His word, doing what He has commanded us to do. Is that same passion yours? Do you have a desire to glorify God, to magnify Him, though you have done so many good things in the past, though you have done God's deeds in the days gone by, though you have gone on missions trips and you have invested and you have trained kids and you have taught in the past, do you still seek to glorify God? Though you have had victory over sin in your life in the past, though you have given out the gospel from time to time, are you still desirous to glorify Him? to do His will. We, um, we had that opportunity at times to go to those amusement parks to be amused like Hershey Park. And so it's fun to go and watch people and to see people. It's fun to go and, and just crowd observe. And it's fun to just kind of walk along. But every so often we get this conversation with a youngster that says, Papa, would you please go on a ride with me? And it's like, uh, I don't do spinning up and down things or things that go every which way, which is every ride in Hershey Park. Okay, I don't. And it's like, but Papa, I really want to go. And it's like, yeah, but I really don't want to go. But Papa, my daddy says that I should ask you because he won't go with me because your daddy doesn't like you. No, I don't say that. I don't say that to him. Don't, I don't put that in he says, would you please go with me? So we're standing by the Tilt-A-Whirl, which is the most ungodly of all rides, okay? <laughs> and we're watching it last year, and we're trying to pick out which one to ride on. You know, when you're in line? The kids are thinking, the one that goes the fastest, you know, in circles. I'm thinking the one that's locked. It just kind of goes and doesn't move at all. And they're watching, and they got one. I think they greased it that morning. That thing was going like this, like this, like this, and I'm praying, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, help somebody else in front of us get in that one. The people in front of us were smart. They didn't use that one. There was one left, and we were the last people. It was the one that looked like a blender. And so we get inside of this thing, and, we're, and the grandkids are excited. I'm praying, help me not to upchuck. Help me not to upchuck. Please, Lord, help me not to get sick. The ride didn't even start. It's already going. 
And it went around and around. In fact, when we got off, the, the rest of the family was all standing there. So we've never seen one of those go so many times in a circle. And the other people standing next to them, they said, that's the first time we saw one go so that fast. And I was on it. And I felt sick. Why did I go? Not because I wanted to get sick. He wanted it. I wanted to please him. I was an idiot. <laughs> but looking back, I did it to please him. Jesus Christ says, will you get on the tilt of world of life with me? Will you do some of the tough things? They aren't going to make you feel good. They're going to make you feel dizzy. But will you do it because you want to please me? Will you do something that is kind of challenging when it comes to some of that idea about, you know, it's difficult. and You feel like you're in a buzz sometimes. You feel like doing some of the idea, some of the things of forgiving somebody and taking that risk. But if you love me, do what I've asked you. That's how you glorify me. Would you, would you be so, so, you know, determined and passionate that you'd work at your speech? That you'd stop the complaining and you'd start on constructive? Would you be so determined and passionate about honoring me that you would treat your spouse the way you're supposed to? Would you really give of yourself this week? Get on the whirlwind of life. Get on the spinning and go and visit some of the widows. Not just talk about it, but actually do it. Would you do the, uh, the idea of taking your Bibles and reading them and praying? Even though sometimes you say, hey, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm just so busy and I don't want to risk what it could be doing and shaking up my life. Would you say, God, this is what you want. I will be pure. God, this is what you want. I will count it all joy when it is the life's greatest pains and heartaches in the trials and the difficulties, but I'm going to give you glory. Pleasing him. Jesus had that desire for the Father. Do you. Something else that strikes me about Jesus' prayer is when he's praying for his disciples, he prays for the same thing for them. He wants them to glorify the Father. It's interesting. Now, the text, we've already seen that Jesus in that next few verses, verses 6 through 19, he's focusing on his disciples. He describes them. There's no doubt. He's talking about the 11. He talks about those who I've manifested your name to and I've talked to, that you gave to me when I was on this earth. They're the ones that I declared and they received the word that I told them. They, they were the individuals who believed that you sent me, Father. They're the ones that, you know, that you kept. And they're not lost. We lost the son of perdition because this was what you had predicted would happen, that Judas would give away. I'm praying for those individuals, these 11, who right now here at this supper, they are dismayed. They are confused. They are confounded. I just told them I'm leaving. That, that just broke their heart. I just told them that one of them is going to betray me. They're so confused. They're saying, is it me? Is it me? I told them that all of you will deny me. And they're swearing they will, they will die for me before they deny me. And the one who is the most adamant is Peter. And Father, they need you. But more than just needing you, they need to glorify you. They need to magnify you. Would you help them to keep that purpose in mind? You, you look at the text and watch how he prays. Okay? We know he's concerned for them. He's praying because he's leaving. He's telling them, I'm gone. I'm gonna, you're you're going to be hated of this world. The, the world's not going to like you. They didn't like me, and so I need to pray for them. 
because they're not of this world. I, I've, I've worked in them and I've molded them and they're, they're not like the normal person anymore. They're a changed creature. So God, you need to help them. You need to help them to keep focused. And so here, Father, this is what I'm praying for. And he says it in an awkward way from, from the way we would approach it, the way we would understand it. He says, keep them in thy name. Now there's a variety of thoughts but there's a number of the scholars who have concluded that, and I agree with them, that in the context, this is what he's talking about. Keeping them in your name is not protecting them so they would lose their salvation. That's not a possibility. But keeping them in your name is the idea. Keep them so they magnify your name. Keep them in a walk that they bring glory to you, that they, they walk in the family name of God, that they are living like they belong to you, that they would, they would live in such a way as to bring no shame upon your reputation when they say, I'm of the family of God. So keep them in your name. Help them to magnify you. Help them to honor your name. Help them to live in a way that brings glory to you. He's, and he makes a comment. If they're able to do this, as you, as you watch the construction of the passage and go down a little bit further where he says, you know, uh, where he makes that comment about them doing this in verse 13, now come to you, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled. If they can keep on honoring you, if they can keep on magnifying you, even though it's going to be difficult, even though they're going to have problems, even though they're going to have opposition, they're going to have peace and joy in their heart. That's what I promised them. And Father, so you help them that's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. When they go out and they're hated and they're persecuted and they're beaten and they gather back together and they count it all joy. They rejoice that they are able to suffer, to be beaten, to be worthy of such treatment in the name of God Almighty. So he says, God, this is what I want you to do. Help them to continuously magnify you, honor you, exalt your name. That way they'll have joy and they'll have peace. And when he prays specifically... He says, God, they're going to need a few things from you. For them to really honor you, please do this for them. Please help them so they have that joy. Please assist them. Help them to be one as we are one. He mentions that in verse 11. Help the disciples. to. Isn't it interesting that he prays this at the end of the meal as they are wrapping up their supper in the, in the hall? Do you remember what those men were doing when they entered the door earlier that evening? They were arguing amongst themselves who should be the what? The greatest. When they said that one of you is going to deny me and he says then all of you are going to end up denying or one's going to betray then they were wondering you know, who it is and then he says you're going to deny me and Peter says though all these others might deny you I won't. He didn't have a high view of the other disciples. They had a problem all along. They've been kind of you know, bickering with one another and they've been snapping at one another. Now Jesus is praying as his, his final prayer for them is God help them to glorify you and the way that they can do this is God you're going to have to give them unity. You're going to have to give them help that they get along. That they stop the bickering over who is the best, who gets the most prominent seats. You're, they're going to need your assistance in this area. Because otherwise, they're going to be divided. Then he prays for something else. He says in verse 15, would you keep them from the evil is what our King James, but by the, the way the construction is, it makes more sense. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from Satan, who is wanting to just tear them apart, to you know, thrash them in the harvester, if you would. 
please protect them. Protect them spiritually that they don't give in. Protect them that he doesn't destroy them for the discouragement and the guilt that they will feel in the next few days when I am gone and before I resurrect and they're in that upper room and they're so afraid and they're so discouraged. Keep them, Father. I want them to magnify you, but for that to happen, you need to give them unity. You need to give them protection. And then he prays one other thing for them. Help them to grow. They haven't grown enough. I've spent two and a half years of training them. And I've been teaching them, but they aren't there yet. They're going to be apostles, but they still need to grow. And even when Peter, down later, in the, when we read about it in Galatians, when Peter is going to be prejudiced even later on, doesn't want to, you know, want to move away from the tables. Though he's preaching, we should fellowship with Gentiles. When he's put on the spot, he's going to struggle with prejudice. Keep them growing. Sanctify them through your word. It's your word, Father. That's what's going to make people clean. But please, sanctify them. Help them to grow. Help them never come to a spot where they believe they've arrived. Help them never come to a spot where, where they dis, you know, discount the preaching, the hearing of the word of God, because they don't need it. They feel they're mature enough. Father, work in them. Work in my 11 that they are sensitive, that they are students, that they are, they are susceptible to growth, conviction. Keep them united. Keep them protected. Keep them growing. That's his prayer for those 11. And it's interesting that Jesus says, now I'm sending them into the world. Help them, Father, to magnify you. To make sure that they fulfill this mission. And that's how they're going to magnify you if they just fulfill. Do, do you have a desire like Christ for other people? brothers and sisters in Christ, that you pray for them that same passionate way, that you pray for family members, for unity, for protection, that you pray for brothers and sisters in the Lord, for their spiritual growth. Do you have that same passion that you want to help out other believers that you take the time out of your busy week to study a passage so you can teach other people the word? Do you have that same desire that even though you've taught in the past, I still want to communicate to young lives, to older lives, the Word of God? Do you remind fellow believers of the mission that God has given them to glorify Him? Are you willing to personally invest in somebody's life to disciple them to somebody that you could just put your arm around, that you could befriend them in the faith, and you could be a personal mentor to them? Oh, I know you're busy. I know your life is filled with all kinds of activities, but discipleship making is the mission of God. It was that which he says before he ascends, go into the world and make disciples. Are you doing that right now? Is there somebody that you are investing in on a regular basis to disciple them, to help them to grow spiritually, to pray with them, to teach them the word of God? Or do you say, well, that's the job of the professional? No. That's the mission of every teen in this room. That's the mission of every woman, every man in this room. And Jesus says, help my men that I, have, that I am going to leave behind. Help them while they're in this world. Don't take them out of the world. They've got a job to do. Don't remove them. Boy, does that go against our rapture praying? We want them to come and take us away so we can get done. 
And he's praying, don't remove them. Help them to fulfill the mission that I have left them in this world to do. Do you pray that way? Do you want that to be done? And then Jesus wraps this whole thing up where he's praying for us. I said at the very beginning, so let me remind you, praying reveals passion. What you pray for is what you're passionate about. If you're praying only for things and money, that shows where your passion is. If you're praying just for peace and comfort and possessions, that shows where your passion is. But if you're saying, I want fellowship with God, then you're spending time with Him. That's, that shows your passion, where you're praying, what you're praying about. If you're passionate about being right with God, your prayer life includes confession. If you're an individual who's passionate about praising God, you're going you're to be praising Him in your prayer. That'll be a part of your prayer life. If you're passionate about learning to trust Him, you're going to cast your cares upon Him for He cares for you. If you are passionate about doing His will, you're going to ask for strength. If you're passionate about being right with other people, you're going to be praying, God, help me to forgive people. If you're passionate about souls of people, you're praying for them by name, by desire. Your prayer reveals your passion. It reveals what you're like. Well, Jesus' prayer revealed His passion. He was about glorifying God. He was about having his disciples glorify God. Then he prays for us. And what does he ask the Father to help us to do? What is his passion for us? It's the same thing. As you go through the text and put it all together, he is going to pray and focus on, help my future disciples. The ones who come to faith because of what the apostles do. The apostles will record. The apostles will preach. They'll give out the word of God. So I'm praying, starting in that verse uh, later in the passage, right about verse 20, I'm praying for those who will believe on me in the future through the ministry of the apostles. That's us. We have, we have benefited from the ministry of the apostles recording the scriptures, and we've responded, and we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and now he's praying for us. There's no doubt that in this prayer he has you and me in mind. And it's an awesome thought, isn't this, that God would pray for you. I mean, just think about this. Just think about the, the silliness of this thought. The awesome thought. There are seven, seven some billion people on the world and God knows you by name. We can't remember one another's name. We forget our kids' names. And God knows you. And he prayed for you on this evening. And when he prayed, the essence of his prayer is help them to glorify me. You say, well, I don't see the word glorify. Yeah, but do you see the word about us helping other people to come to know God, to magnify God? I pray for these. So you help these, my disciples, those people who will one day sit in Lebanon at Faith Baptist on the 14th of April, help them so that the world may believe. Help them so that the world may know that you sent me. Help my disciples to make an impact in lives so that people will behold me in my glory. Help them in such a way to live because they need to know your love. They need to know that you loved me and you loved them and that the world may know that you love them. Help my disciples relay you to elevate you, to lift you up 
so that many more would come in faith. That's, a, that's magnifying God. That's manifesting God. That's glorifying God. Help those people. Help them to lift me up, to lift God up, to lift up His name so that many others in their workplace and where they go to school and in their family, so when they, they run into people that they get together with on Easter weekend with the relatives that they may impact them by the way that they lift you up. They may impact their relatives so that the relatives come to faith in Christ so they can behold my glory one day. He's praying for you to magnify God. He's praying for me to lift up God, to glorify God. That's his prayer essence. That's what he wanted for himself. That's what he wanted for his disciples. That's what he wants for us. And he prayed for it. That we would lift up the Christ and the Father. Now that's, that's the gist of his prayer. But for that to happen, do you know he prayed one specific request to be fulfilled? For the disciples, let them be united. For the disciples, protect them from the evil one. For the disciples, help them to be sanctified. He doesn't repeat that for us. He addresses our most important need, apparently. He says, Father, this one, and this is the request. Help them in one area that they may be one. He says it in verse 21. He says it that they may be one. He says it in verse 22, that they may be one. He says it again in verse 23, that they may be perfect in one. What's he talking about? He's praying for, for unity in the body. He's making it a priority. This is the most important concern I have for those future disciples, that they may be united. Not uniform. Not thinking and doing and looking exactly the same. Because there needs to be difference. There's multiple gifts. There's multiple abilities. It's like your body. There's a whole different faction of, of different elements that go together to, to work together. But he's praying for unity. He's praying for unity in the body. He mentions it several times. It is his prayer request for it. It's a priority with him. He makes it as well a pattern in this passage for this unity. He says it on several different occasions. He says, as you and I are one. As we are one, the way you loved me and the way I love you, help them to love one another. So he's saying, help these people to work in such harmony and unity that they work the same as the Father and the Son work together. I don't think he's praying so that you and I would argue over silly things and it doesn't it hasn't happened here, you know, color of carpets and this, that, or the other thing. But work is one. Worship is one. I know what it doesn't include. It doesn't include sending out emails and propagating them that's saying there's major changes going on in our church three weeks ago during the missions conference, emails floating around that panicked a number of folk that there's major, major changes going to happen in the church. I would like to know what they are. But apparently somebody is in on something that none of us know about. But it sure destroys unity. Sure destroys unity when somebody goes and visits some of the seniors and complains that some of the ushers and some of the deacons are taking all the handicapped parking spots out front. That they keep seeing them parking there every Sunday. Do you realize what those men are doing? 
they're parking the cars for the handicapped people. They're not taking their spots. I don't think Jesus is praying for that type of unity, of sharing that kind of stuff. I don't think he's praying that people would get upset that somebody took their seat here in the building and so they're never coming back to church because somebody took their seat. That's not unity, folk. None of that stuff is unity. He's praying that you and I would work together for a cause and it's not about you and me getting our way. It's not about you and I getting the attention. It's not about you and I, everybody flocking to and saying, ooh, wow, look at you. Unity is you and I exalting Christ and God the Father. It's magnifying Him, not ourselves. Unity is saying, I will work together, I will pray together, I understand we have differences and we have different ideas, but we're going to not undermine ministries. We're going to get the word out. And we're going to work together to teach the word, to propagate the word, to manifest the word, to make sure that people in the community know that we all believe that God has sent the Son. The Son has sent us out to proclaim that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's unity. Unity is working together, praying together, it isn't coming here and then jokingly saying to some others, well, I'd never talk to that person there. I just ignore them and I won't talk to them at all because they said something about my kids 30 years ago. That's wrong. That's against the word of God. That's against his prayer. Unity is a pattern that Jesus Christ said, as the Father did. And he says, there's a reason I want unity in my body. The reason is twofold. Look at how he mentions it in this text. He says, I want you to be united. So he says in verse 21, he says that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in them, that they also may be one in us. Without unity, with, with being I, I don't know, petty, petty about stuff, you break fellowship with the Father. You break fellowship with the Son. When you're attacking and if you're, if you're nitpicking if we're causing discord, then he says you're not in us. And then he gives the other reason in the follow-up of that phrase where he says that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, one of the most difficult things for all of us to do is share the gospel. It's intimidating. I know it's intimidating for you because a lot of you have never led somebody to the Lord outside of some ministry here. It's a challenge. It's hard. It's hard to share the Word of God. And he says, if we are united and working together, we can help each other to get the Word out, to get the Word out, so that the world may know, that the world may be drawn to see there's something there. They are united. They are working together. They are in harmony together because they have a greater cause, and that cause is to magnify Christ, to get others to believe so we need each other to give out the gospel. We need to work together in getting out the gospel. Some of those things that we talked about last Sunday night and tonight is with this whole idea of what can we do to work in harmony together to do a better job of getting out the gospel. 
I don't know how to beg you to say, come back in here. This is our mission. This is our goal. This is how we're supposed to be glorifying him. Get involved by getting and working together in this idea of sharing the gospel. And he makes the comment here about this whole unity aspect, the idea where he says, and I find this interesting, the phrasing is really difficult, and, and I know there's multiple views. I've come down where I think what he's doing in context is how to promote this unity. What's it take? And he says, the glory which you gave me, I have given them. And there's a lots of trees have been fallen to write about what does he mean, the glory that you gave me, I have given them. And there's some who will say what he's talking about is he's talking about the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven. I've given them the hope of heaven and that'll help them to be united because they're all going to, you know, they're all going to be working for the same thing. Therefore, if they all know that they're going to spend forever and ever with each other, they'll get along perfectly. <laughs> Theoretical. Should work that way, but is that what he's talking about? Or some have suggested this. He's talking about the glory of a transfigured life, a transformed life. That the glory that you gave me where I had a, a, you know, this trans, transformation, if you would, this coming and I, and I came and then my glory was seen on, on the transfiguration and how I changed their lives. And I, I made Peter, who was very, very haphazard, I, I make him a rock. And I help those who are, who are arguing over who's the best. They eventually become disciples of love. And is that the glory he's talking about? Some say it is. I think it's this. I think that what he's talking about is what is going to be honored and going to be said, well done, thou faithful servant. What exactly that it takes in our heart to become pleasing, honorable, rewarded, whatever word you want to use, to be recognized by God. To be given acknowledgement by God. In Mark, he says what it is in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples came and they were arguing over which should have the biggest, best seats in the kingdom. And Jesus says, are you willing, ready? Are you able to suffer the things that I'm going to suffer? And he goes on, asks them questions. But then he wraps it up and he says, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who does what? Here in this earth. Becomes servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. The glory, the path that you gave me, Jesus is saying, to be exalted was a path of humility and service for others. That same path to glory I have given to them. That in humility they might have unity because they are serving one another. They are doing everything they can to help out each other, not to stumble each other. They are willing to serve one another as teachers. They are willing to serve one another in, in those spots that aren't enviable, watching kids so others can learn. They're willing to serve to deke as a deacon. They're willing to serve as a Bible study leader, even though they've put in their time. They're willing to serve others and to give of themselves 
to minister and minister and minister and minister. And that's, he says, how they will have that unity. And if they have that unity, they will make a difference in the community. They will make an impact. They will truly, truly draw others to faith in Christ. What a tremendous passage. What a well. What a mine of hard elements but precious truths. That Jesus Christ in this passage is saying, this is what I want from you guys. This isn't a thing from Lincoln, a house div you know, divided cannot stand. Lincoln didn't come up with that. Jesus Christ made the statement. Unity is important. This idea is that we are united in spirit and in fellowship and in prayer, in assisting and in ministering to one another, united in missions. This idea of unity affects both our walk with God and our witness to the world. This idea of unity is essential for you and I to bring glory to God the Father, according to the words of Jesus Christ. And it's critical. You know, you go out to California, you see the sequoia trees, and they are phenomenal. They are amazing. I've never been there, but I just see the pictures. Some of you have seen them. And it's interesting that some of these trees have started off as several trees. But then over time, like the wedding chapel one, there was nine of them that grew out of a fallen tree in the center. And then they grew up out of those roots, and in time they became one and strengthened and grew over the ages. There are others that you see where when the, when the tree falls and it prospers in a way that others start growing out of it. That's the way we're supposed to be. As time goes by, we're supposed to be united and showing the greatness, the goodness, the majesty of our God. We're supposed to be propagating ourselves and reproducing ourselves and building up other saints that grow from us so that the legacy we leave behind is not necessarily monies, but it's lives that are vested in Jesus Christ. And he says, this is where you bring glory. And we're, we're amazed. And, and we say, wonders of the world in creation. But here's the wonder of creation. Is when God takes a group of people who come from so many different backgrounds and unites us together as a family and we work together. And we see souls saved. We see discipleship being accomplished. But it won't be accomplished if we're not doing our part. The text is challenging. It's all about Jesus magnifying the Father. How He did it. How He said, this is how I'm going to glorify and make you, make you manifest God. I'm working in the hearts and I'm magnifying you. And when He wraps it all up, He says, this is my heart's desire that everyone realizes the love that we have together. That it is showing in lives all around so that they can be with us in heaven one day. And He winds it all up and says, this is my heart. Is it your heart? Is it what He wants from you? Randolph Hearst, you've heard of him. Famous publisher, you know, years ago. You know, that Citizen Kane was all about, you know, his life in a, in a fictional way. And when he got to be at the peak of his wealth, he started doing what Citizen Kane did, you know, in the movie. Started gathering all kinds of art possessions from around the world and statues and paintings. And he had a huge uh, area in his, 
in his estate that had all kinds of different art collections. But he sent one young man, he said, I read about this one thing, I want you to go. And the man traveled to Europe, several different places, and he finally tracked down that one piece of art that Hearst said he needed to have to be happy. And guess where it was? It was in Hearst's garage. He already had it. He already had it, didn't even know it. Didn't even know the treasure that he already had. Do you realize that there are some people sitting here this morning that don't realize the treasure that is right here? The treasure of knowing for sure you're on your way to heaven? Of knowing a purpose for your life? It's already presented to you. It's Jesus Christ. It's Him. It's Jesus Christ giving your all to serve Him, to love Him, putting your faith in Him. There are believers sitting here that are saying, wait a minute, I need something more in life. What you need is Christ to just be the center of your life, to be your focus. You, some of you say, I, I, need, I need something so I can be a witness. You already got it. You got the Spirit of God. Now you got to work here together to just produce that witness. It's not something we need to go on the hunt for. It's supposed to be here already. He's given us Christ. He's given us the Word. He's given us one another. We don't need to be searching for something different. We just need to be working together, getting out that gospel. Bottom line is this, and I end with these thoughts. Questioning you, do you pray for others and yourself to glorify God? Do you pray for souls like Christ did that people would believe? Do you strive to glorify God? Do you seek to become an answer to God's prayer this morning that you would provide and promote unity? Or are you holding back are you a reason why some peoples are not responding? Are you causing disunity? Are you about self being magnified instead of Christ? Are you about to change your life? Father, help us this day to just not hear the word, but help us to be doers. Help us to be individuals who live up to this prayer, the prayer of dedication to you, to glorifying you. Help us to make sure that what we do is work in harmony. What we do is work with energy to try to promote unity, to try to promote a oneness in Christ so as to promote faith in Christ, so as to present that which will provide hope of eternity. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his ministry in our hearts. Thank you for his example in prayer. And help us to become more like Christ in whose name I pray. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed this morning. And as the instrumentalist plays through a hymn of meditation, you're here this morning and you do not know for sure you're on your way to heaven. We want to give you that opportunity. There are men, ladies, standing over by the side door, the right of the auditorium, that hallway, and they are willing and anxious to show anyone in this room who would like, from the Word of God, how you can be sure you're going to heaven. While the hymn is being played, you are more than welcome to get out of your seat, to go over that direction, and to talk with one of them in private to know for sure if you're going to be in heaven one day. This was Christ's prayer that men, ladies, will come to know the love of God and see Him in His glory. You want to know for sure, then please get up and go and talk with one of those folk. You who are born again, you're already saved. Are you 
living up to the prayer of Christ, glorifying the Father? Are you living up to the prayer of Christ, working at unity? Are you living up to the prayer of Christ of getting others to hear about salvation? If you need to make some commitments, this is the day to do it. If you haven't gotten up and gone over there, but you would like to talk afterwards, we will be around and we will gladly talk with you. Tonight, we're coming back 6.30, and what we're going to be doing is talking about how to get the gospel out, how to get the gospel out. Come and join us. This is the mission that Christ has given us. Father, we pray that you would help us to magnify you throughout this day. Help us to learn to magnify you when we go in our cars and we talk about church. Help us to magnify you when we sit at the tables in the restaurant and we, and we visit. Help us to magnify you this evening when we have a choice of what are we going to do this evening. Help us to magnify you tomorrow by the way we work and what we do. Help us to magnify you and magnify you and magnify you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you tonight. Thanks.